to the Lord over the last several weeks as he's been telling me to go here. I'm like, are you sure you want to uh, close out the year in 1 Samuel 17? Uh, but he's made this emphatically clear, and I'm sure that will come clear as we go on. So before we get into our text for today, we're going to be reading out of 1 Samuel 17, starting in verse 32. I got to bring you up to speed, because if we just take this little passage of Scripture, it's easy to lose context, and it's, um, it's kind of difficult without the backstory and the, the end of the story. So uh, what had happened was we have uh, the first king of Israel. We have King Saul. Uh, David, who was about 12 to 15 years old at this time, had just been anointed king. Uh, 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 yeah, anointed king at the end of chapter 16. So David's kind of on the back burner, but we have this war going on with the Philistines, a great enemy of Israel and of King Saul, and you have this battle that's about to go on. You have a big valley, uh, you have the Philistines on this side, and you have Israel on this side, and they're looking at each other, and for 40 days, they've been at a stalemate. The champion of the Philistines, Goliath, we know he's the giant uh, from Gath, where a lot of the giants were from. Uh, he comes out every morning and he taunts the Israelites. And he is this giant loudmouth. Like, we've all known loud people, right? Some might even say it was me. But we all, we all know loudmouths. And they're very insolent. They're very annoying. And they have a way of just getting to you, right? When somebody opens their mouth and you're like, this is the guy that I don't want to hear at all, ever. So this is Goliath. He comes out. He's got a big mouth. And he starts defying the armies of the living God. And he says, why don't you guys send out a warrior and we'll just settle this right now. Send out one guy to come and fight me. And if he wins, we'll be your servants. And we will serve you forever. Or if I win, you will serve me. So he comes out 40 days. Remember, he's nine feet tall. The Bible says he's over nine feet tall. His armor weighed 150 pounds. I mean, for weightlifters, that's the, big, that's the heavy bar with two big 45-pound plates on it. That's what he carried around as his armor. He had a shield uh, bearer going out in front of him, literally somebody to hold his shield for him. The, the head of his spear weighed 15 pounds. No wonder he's a loudmouth. <laughs> he has something to boast, boast in in the natural, right? So he comes out, he defies the armies of the living God, and it says, the Bible says that the men of Israel, the, the bad boys, they were literally, he would open his mouth and they would run, filled with terror, filled with fear. And they'd run away 40 days in a row. So then uh, David's dad says, hey, your brothers, three of your brothers are out there in the front lines. I want you to go out there, take them some cheese, take them some crackers, you know, because you're just a boy. But just go ahead and give them something to eat and then come back here and tell me how they're doing. Well, David goes out there and he hears this Philistine, Goliath, defy the armies of the living God. And David is absolutely perplexed. He's saying, how is anybody letting this happen? Don't you know who you're fighting for? But he's just a boy, right? About 12 to 15 years old. So everybody's like, yeah, you don't understand, little boy. His brothers are like, you don't get it. You just came out here to watch the battle. We know who you are. You know, you just came out here to be entertained. You don't, you don't get it. And he's like, no, well, uh, no, I think you don't get it because he's defying the armies of the living God. This uncircumcised Philistine Funny, he keeps throwing this out there. It's like David is obsessed with the fact that Goliath is uncircumcised and he's a Philistine. 
He's obsessed with it. Five times in this chapter, he says that. You're going to let this guy, this Philistine, defy God? And he's absolutely confused. So that's the backstory. And then we have this interaction to where David says, I have an idea. I'll go fight him. Okay? I got it. And everybody's like, oh, shh, shh, shh. I think we've all been there in life. Have you ever been uh, completely underestimated? That people say, just pipe down. That's a very nice idea, and I'm glad you're thinking. But let the adults talk now. That's what's happening here. Okay, so he goes and he starts talking to King Saul, and he says, I'm going to go fight him. They say, no, that's our text for today. The end of the story, or as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story is that David goes out there in his own garb. He says, I can't wear any of this armor. I'm going to go out there with what I know. I'm going to grab five smooth stones. I'm going to get them in a sling. And the Bible, see, this, this is where Hollywood misses it. This is the baddest, the baddest battle scene you will ever see in any movie when the little boy David, it says that he ran towards the battle line. So he's running. He's not just like walking up there. He's running and he's throwing that sling. Have you ever seen anybody throw a stone from those slings? No, they don't just slap it out there. They're winging it and he's full sprint at the battle line. He takes the crow hop, wham! And he hits him right between his eyes. And the Bible says that is what killed him. It wasn't the sword that he used to cut off his head. He killed him with a stone. This was awesome. Yeah, praise God. Okay, so he was convinced. And then he stepped into what he knew God would deliver him uh, through. And he did it. And he killed the giant. Okay, and he was so proud of it. The Bible says that he walked around for several days holding the giant's head. That's pretty hardcore. I don't have a context for that, okay? I don't. I mean, I think some of the hunters around here would know, like, hey, there's a lot of blood, there's a lot of, there's odor, there's a lot of things happening, but that is how hardcore this boy was. That's the end of the story. Did one of the greatest feats in all military history, if not the greatest feat of all military history. He did it by himself, a boy. Israel followed the, obviously, the Philistines ran away in absolute terror. They ran away. Uh, uh, Israel followed, slain them, slayed them for, for miles and miles. Okay, so that's the rest of the story. So there's the context of what we're going to talk about here. So let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 17. Let's start in verse 32. Don't worry <laughs> about this Philistine. David told Saul, I'll go fight him. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you could fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. But David persisted. I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. Whoa. I have done this to both lions and bears. That's plural, mind you. I have done this to both lions and bears, and I will do it to this pagan Philistine too, for he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. Saul finally consented. All right, go ahead. He said, and may the Lord be with you. Let's pray. Lord God, you are God. You are Yahweh, you are Adonai, you are worthy of all praise and all honor. All glory is yours. 
This is your church. And we've come here today, Lord God, to worship you and you alone, to listen to your word. And we want to thank you for this new era that we are in, Lord. Thank you for this last year at this church and in our individual lives. Lord, we do thank you for our new pastor. We thank you that a new year is literally on the horizon. We thank you for your new covenant that you made between mankind and yourself through the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, we do thank you for this new era that we are stepping into. Corporately here as a church, uh, personally, in our families, even in our workplaces, we know that you are at work, O God. And we thank you that even as the days grow dark, that just means that your light shines brighter. Thank you for your truth. We love you, and all glory is yours. In Jesus' name, we praise you. Amen. So a couple weeks ago, Steve Burdick, which it's weird for me still to say Steve Burdick. You know, he was our counselor when I was at Bear Creek High School. So Mr. Burdick, <laughs> he, he treated the idea of biblical hope, you know, in the context of Advent. He spoke of hope. And one of the things that jumped out to me so much was the worldly idea of hope comes without expectation. The worldly idea of hope says, well, I hope I get a Ferrari one day. And you know darn well you're not going to get a Ferrari, right? (laughs) Yeah, or a Corvette or whatever. Um, That's the worldly idea. People who don't know Christ as their Savior, they have a hope that is empty. It is devoid of power and anticipation. But Christian hope comes with expectation. And this is so wonderful. What it is, is the Christian expects God to do God things. My son Judah used to pray, and uh, I never rebuked him for this, but I always it, something like stirred with me. He would always pray, and I'd buddy, do you want to pray? Yeah, I'll pray. I hope that uh, our neighbor gets healed. I hope that um, daddy has a good day and is safe at work, and I hope, and I hope, and I hope. And he would say that, and I would be like, no, man, you don't hope. You ask God for something by prayer and petition. You know, I was giving him all these, you know, I had all these ideas of how he should pray. But it had occurred to me a few weeks ago when Steve Burdick was praying, that's exactly how my Judah would pray. He would pray expecting. He would say, I hope, knowing that God is God and God would do God things. Man, I wish that sometimes that I had the faith of my children because they take the word of God and they say, yeah, that makes sense. I'm going to ask God to heal grandpa's cancer. And that's just the way it is. And I expect him to do things like that because he is God. Okay? It's wonderful to look at this idea of hope and expectation. But let me ask you a question. Did you know that God has expectations for you? He has expectations for his children. He really does. Do I expect my kids to go out and make complete fools out of themselves when they go to the birthday parties or wherever else? No, I don't. I expect them to be representatives of the Parker family. And uh, do they expect their daddy not to go out and make a fool out of himself? (laughs) Sometimes, hey, it happens. Okay? But God has expectations for his people just as a parent has expectations for their children. God expects his children to do children of God things. 
if we don't know that, we're missing a whole lot of the Bible. That God is expecting his people to do something. You know, the, the, the cosmic question, what is the meaning of life? What is the purpose? Why are we all here? Well, I'll tell you, that's a big part of it. God is expecting his children to do children of God things. Not sit around and get spiritually out of shape and maybe go to church once in a while and never open your Bibles or anything like that. Myself included. So he's expecting things of us. So today we're going to look at just five characteristics of King David and how those characteristics relate to the Christian, to the modern Christian. So like I said, when I was reviewing this and I was praying about this and as God was uh, downloading all this information into me and my brain was just completely confused, but my spirit was like, yeah, I, I guess that makes sense. But I've been asking God, why David? Why are we going all the way back to this obscure kind of passage, you know, in, in Old Testament history? Of, and why are we going to talk about David and Goliath? Everybody's heard of the fin, this one rock went in the sling, the sling. Everybody knows that story. Why are we going back? But he brought a few things to my attention. One is the absolutely unusual intimacy that King David, even when he was young, had with the Lord God Almighty. It was very unusual. When you read the Psalms, when you read all the accounts of David, he had this understanding of the Almighty God that nobody around him got. Everybody was missing it. Okay, so he had this unusual intimacy with God. He had this unusual confidence in God. He had this unusual power from God that he just, every time he turned around, he was doing something fantastic. Everybody was jealous of him. All the ladies wanted him, you know. I mean, that's just the nature of David. But we have to ask why. What was so different about David? And the answer is, and you can write this down if you want, it's at the very end of 2 Samuel 16. It was right after he was anointed to be the future king. It's in verse 13. I highly encourage you to look at this because we could read over this verse so quickly and not recognize the absolute gravity of this one verse. It says that Samuel anointed David, and from that time on, he was filled with the Holy Spirit and with power. Who does that sound like? The Christian. He is this wonderful archetypal picture from the Old Testament of what the New Testament des describes the Christian to be. Does that make sense? It's amazing how the Lord foreshadows everywhere he goes. He says, this is what it's going to look like. This is what you'll recognize. When you become a Christian and you read old, the Old Testament through that lens of being a Christian, everything will come alive to you. And King David is no different. That's why I love how poignant and how uh, emphatic the Holy Spirit's power is in the Old Covenant, how much more so in the New. This is very, very exciting. So that's what we're going to look at, these five quick characteristics of King David and how that relates to God's expectations of the Christian today, specifically in this new era that we're in. So when we talk about the new era that we're in, I can't speak for uh, Pastor Tyler's vision. We, he and I have not orchestrated any of this sermon. This is completely independent of Pastor Tyler. He could come in tomorrow, or yeah, he starts work tomorrow, right, doesn't he? On the second, okay, yeah, he could come in here and be like, hey, whatever you guys heard on Sunday, let's just, let's just throw that out. 
okay? It was a mistake. He was a fill-in guy. Don't worry about it, okay? This is not Tyler Menson's vision, okay? But what this is, is I'm trying to communicate biblical truth and what God wants for his people, okay? So I have to give that little caveat there. <laughs> so we are in an era. Now, this is what I, what I love, is that we all know that this year has been fairly tumultuous within this church, right? There's been ups and downs, and there's been talking, and there's been, you know, there's been difficulty naturally, right? That's what's, you know, you're naturally going to have some of that. So we're not denying that. But when we look at the uh, definition of era, Merriam-Webster, who's a great Christian man, he described it like this. And this is what I kind of want to focus on. An era is defined as a fixed point in time from which a series of years is reckoned. It's a memorable or important date or event, especially one that begins a new period in the history of a person or thing. Pretty appropriate. A period identified by some prominent figure or characteristic feature of the era. It is a stage of development as a person or a thing. That sounds about right. We're entering a new era of the church. And for many of us in our own personal walks with our King, Jesus Christ. Now, I need to address an elephant in the room, and I love doing this because I like seeing people go, ooh, you know? But if church wasn't real, then what the heck are we doing here? All right? So there is an overt darkness that has arisen in the world around us. An overt darkness. You want proof? Go to King Supers, stand out front, and start introducing people to Jesus Christ, the King of the world, on their way out. And you will feel something come against you so strongly, you can feel it, you think it, it's tangible. The world is growing dark, dark, dark. Very dark. Let me ask you another question. When was the last time, I'm being serious here, this isn't necessarily rhetorical. When was the last time when you were watching hit TV or a hit movie and you saw Jesus Christ portrayed as who he really is? The son of God, the savior of the world, the king. It doesn't happen. In the New York Times, the Washington Post, Time Magazine, let me ask you, tell me the last Disney movie that you saw that claimed Jesus Christ is king. It doesn't happen. How about Netflix? Quite the contrary, if you're paying attention. Quite the contrary. There is this overt darkness now that has one job, and that is to conceal the face of the king of kings, the savior of the world. And as I tell my kids, it's not necessarily what you saw in the movie, Tell me what you did not see in that movie. Tell me who was not in there. Was Jesus Christ in that movie? Was Jesus Christ in that music? And the answer is no. There is now this overt attack on our king, Jesus Christ. Let me tell you about a few of the hit books right now on Amazon. Here's a title. A Children's Book of Demons. No, this is big time. Big, big seller. Let me give you the synopsis. Don't want to take out the trash tonight? 
Maybe you're swimming in homework. Perhaps that big bully is being a real drag. Well, grab your colored pencils and sigil, drawing skills, and dial up some demons. Here's another one. Satanic bedtime stories. Here's the synopsis. It's a collection of fables, each illustrating the practical applications of the Satanic Church's nine Satanic statements with fun characters. Join the young boy Damien as he learns... As he learns that Satan be your best friend, join Fang the Wolf on his journey to learn that humans are as wild and as vicious as he. And finally, a practical spider named Lilith who comes to understand that revenge is more effective than turning the other cheek, flying directly into the face of our Lord Jesus. Here's some other titles. Baphomet and Friends, The Satanic Coloring Book, Baby Baphomet's Coloring Book, Demon and Devil Stories for Kids, that's overt darkness, and it's right there. And if they're peddling this to kids, guess what they're giving to you? It's just as overt and vile and sinful and filthy as ever. Here's the flip side of that. It is more quiet and more subtle and more cunning and more deceptive than ever. We don't bat an eye at the things we see out in the world anymore. We didn't stop to think about, well, did it mention Jesus in this movie? Oh, it was great. It was so fun. It was awesome. Don't get me wrong. I'm not a legalist, okay? That's not what I'm saying. But the wool has been pulled over our eyes in so many facets of our world that we don't even recognize what is evil and what is good. In order to be shocked anymore, we have to hear something like a title that says Satanic Bedtime Stories because we're used to it. So that's the overt darkness that has arisen. Let me tell you the rest of the story. An overt era of God's power has come. A new overt outpouring of his spirit has come. Would you like me to prove it biblically? I hope that's the question you're asking. Joel chapter 2. Starting in verse 17, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. 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 That's Joel chapter 2. That's very, very, very radical stuff. That's what we should be making movies about. Okay? This is radical stuff. Now, some people might say, yeah, but that's Joel chapter 2. That's Old Testament. And he says, in those last days. That's fairly vague, right? In those last days. Well, what do you mean by that? Let me give you context. For anybody who says that to you, let me give you the context. Do you know where else that scripture was quoted? In the New Testament. Acts chapter 2. Right after what? Pentecost. The coming of the Holy Spirit. He said, you want context for what you're seeing? The outpouring of God's Spirit? I'll give you the context. And then he quoted from Joel chapter 2. That means the same Pentecost and the Holy Spirit that came that is in you is the same Holy Spirit that remains. 
That's really, really good news. Oh, man. This is good stuff. This is real. This is why we are going back to King David as the, um, the archetypal figure of what it is to be indwelled in the Holy Spirit, to completely trust God with radical faith and go out and slay giants. That's where we are. In our families, in our workplaces, that's exactly where we are. And it's easy to become distracted and say, oh, it's so dark and there's so much going on and there's so much negativity and I can't stand up under this and I'm alone. And the churches are dropping like flies, closing their doors. Those numbers are unbelievable. But God said, no, there will be an increase to his kingdom. Remember in Isaiah, what is it, chapter 8, chapter 9? I think it's chapter 9. So we are living in a time with overt darkness and an even more overt uh, presence of the Holy Spirit. So speaking of the Holy Spirit, here's another elephant in the room. We cannot expect our politics to do the Holy Spirit's job. You're not winning anybody to the kingdom of God with your politics. Okay? And I'm not going to get political, but what I am saying, Democrat, Republican, whatever it is, nobody's coming into the kingdom of God by your reasoning politically. It's not going to happen. You might be able to blue pill somebody or red pill somebody, but that's not going to get them into the kingdom of God. We cannot fall for this trick. It's a trap. Have you seen how many families have been broken up? You hear stories after story. You want to know one of the biggest stories that I saw on social media? It was how families no longer get together because of their political views. What a tragedy. It's almost like we've been duped, like we've been tricked. On that note, did you know, most of you do, that the Jews, when Christ Jesus was here, they were looking for a political savior. They were so obsessed with politics that they literally missed the Savior of the world because he did not fit their uh, political paradigm, who they thought he would be. May it not be so in our church, in God's church. So as we look at this, this text coming up, and this will go fairly quickly, And we're looking at the characteristics of David and God's expectations for his children, for his church. My question to you is this. What is your role in this new era? Because if you're still here and you're still listening, you still have a role to play. So that's the question. In your ministry, in your floundering relationships, in your workplace, in your doubt, in children's ministries... What is your part to play in this new era? So let's look at 1 Samuel 17, okay? Verse 32. Don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go fight him! Exclamation point. But that still really doesn't uh, give justice to the gravity of that situation. That's just an okay translation, in my opinion. This is extremely intense, Situation, And you could tell by the language that is in the original text how heavy this is. This is what really it says in the original text. David said to Saul, said to Saul let no heart fail because of him. A mere man, 
Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Let no heart fail. Have you ever been in a situation when your heart failed? You could probably go back to that. I know that there's a lot of veterans in here. You could probably go back to something like that. I know the first time that somebody put a gun to my face when I was about seven years old, my heart failed me. That's what is being spoken of here. Their hearts were failing. Complete, paralyzing terror. That's what they were dealing with. Maybe you can understand that. So the first characteristic of David here is that David knew his enemy. Listen to what he said. <laughs> Let no heart fail because of him, a mere man. A mere man? What are you talking about? He's nine feet tall. That's not a mere man. That's literally a, a giant. <laughs> Look at his spearhead. It's 15 pounds. No matter how ominous or intimidating, David knew his enemy. And we'll elaborate on that a little bit. Like my mom always used to say, we, we played football in the inner city here, me and my brother, and everybody on our team, literally every single guy on our team, hated football. And those are the guys that are blocking for you. <laughs> and, and they would just let people run by, and I'd be quarterback, and my brother was running back, and we'd just get smashed over and over and over again. And we'd go out to the east side to where these kids are like really, really good at football, and they're all about this big and that wide, and they would just smash us and smash us and smash us. And my brother and I, we'd cry before the games like, Mama, please don't make me go play. I don't want to go play today. I'm still bloody from the week before. Your arms just get trashed in football. And I remember her one time she said to me, they bleed the same blood as you. Get out of the car. <laughs> okay, so you're saying I'm going to be bleeding today? Like, <laughs> But David knew that he was just a man. Like my mama was telling me, they, they're just men. They're just kids just like you. Now you get out of this car. <laughs> and we'd go out there and get smashed. We lost every game for years. It wasn't one year. It wasn't two years. It was, it, I think we won one or two games total in probably five or six years. We just got smashed and beat and beat and beat up. But the point stood. They bleed the same blood. Now, it's about this time in the sermon that I need to explain something because this can get wildly taken out of context. I need to define enemies. As we're speaking, or singing about today, it was so appropriate, speaking of, of enemies, and that we could rest in the presence of God and the presence of our enemies. Here are our enemies. They are not people. You ever notice that the person you're arguing with is oftentimes the person you are sent to lead to Christ Jesus? Speaking of politics, it happens. So Ephesians 6, chapter, uh, verse 10. Let me just read this. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the armory of God so that you could take your stand against the devil's schemes. We've been tricked. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this uh, dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil, that's now, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, you will remain standing. 
Your enemy is the devil. Do not forget that. God expects you to know who you're fighting against. When we're fighting against people, we've missed it entirely. The Bible says that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Their minds are darkened. They don't get it. Politics ain't going to open their eyes. The most eloquent speaker is not going to open their eyes. The Holy Spirit will. That's just the way it is. So characteristic number two. David knew his standing with God. Remember? Five times in this little passage, he's like, what? Remember, remember the, what is it, the Brady Bunch? Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. <laughs> Philistines, Philistines, Philistines. He's obsessed with this. He can't get off the fact that this Philistine, this pagan, has come against the living God. He's obsessed with it. God expects you to know that he is the living God and that you belong to him. Remember Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? So let's continue. I like this one. Don't be ridiculous. Saul replied, there's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. Let me ask you this. Has anyone ever told you something you cannot do? You cannot do that. Okay. I think we've all been told that. Now, this is when it gets really hard to deal with, is when they give you reasons why you can't do what you can't do. You're too short. You can't do differential equations. You're not that well-spoken. You're not rich enough. You're not smart enough. You don't have the family name. You don't have the pedigree. You're not pretty enough. You're not thin enough. You're not educated enough. You don't have your PhD. You don't even have your bachelor's degree. You didn't even graduate high school. You can't do this. Now imagine if that person is somebody in authority over you. That could be crippling. It just so happens that Saul was the king. And he said, you can't do this. You're just a boy. He's this. You're this. David had the opportunity, every opportunity, to rightfully say, you know what? Maybe you're right. But he didn't. He persisted. Don't be ridiculous. Yeah, right. Verse 34, David persisted. Characteristic number three, David didn't quit. God expects you to persist and persevere. I wanted to list these out. If you want to write them down, there's just a couple, uh, only a few. When God repeats himself in his word, you, you might want to listen, right? <laughs> Second Chronicles 15, 7. Galatians 6, 9. The famous Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Philippians 3, 13 through 14, we could go on and on and on that God is saying to his children, do not give up. Like my mom used to say to me, don't give up. You're going to lose this game. There's a good chance and you're going to get beat up and you're going to be bloody, but do not quit. Do not give up. The Bible says do not give up because then you will reap a great harvest if you don't that you persevere, that you push, you fight. And ladies and gentlemen, this is our time as the church to fight. 
We need to understand it when we're talking about this overt darkness. It ain't time to sit here and appease the masses and bow down and say, well, we'll make the gospel a little more palatable, a little more acceptable. The fact of the matter is, is Jesus Christ died for all sinners. And only by his blood can we get to the Father. That's it. That's the gospel. And that is offensive. But it is time to speak the truth. In love, obviously. My sin is no worse than yours. Yours is no worse than mine. Sin is sin. Jesus Christ died to set us free and give us new life and empower us to live wonderful, victorious lives by the power of his Holy Spirit. That's the truth. And we cannot back down from that. So David did not quit. Listen to this. I love this. David reasoned back, and we're going to kind of bring this to a close here. He said, I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats. He said, when a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. That's pretty legit for a 12-year-old. Okay, I have done this. And he's saying, no, 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 I have done this. This isn't hyperbole here. I have done this to both lions, plural, and bears, plural, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine. I'll do it to him too, for he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. A couple things here. David, characteristic number four, David embodied sacrificial love. You think he was ready to die for that lamb? Absolutely. It's a lion. It's a bear. There's a good chance you're going to get mauled to death. It's kind of reminiscent of Matthew 18, verse 12. This is our king here. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for that one who wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. That's you. He came after you. I love that. I love that, Lord. Jesus leaves the 99. I love that song. He leaves the 99 to go after the one, and he's happy about it. He doesn't do it begrudgingly. King David didn't do it. Oh, I guess I better go out as a shepherd boy and go get this, this little sheep. He went after it with all of his heart and he knew it was the right thing to do. David stood up for those who could not stand for themselves. Sounds like King Jesus, doesn't it? The lamb is helpless in the jaws of the lion. I think we've watched enough Animal Planet to see not looking good pretty helpless. But let me tell you, who else is in the jaws of the lion? You're right, big boy. The addicted, the trafficked, they're helpless. The mentally ill, the suicidal, the abused, the unborn, they are in the jaws of the lion. And who's going to help them? The world ain't going to help him. Matter of fact, he's encouraging it. Your enemy is encouraging that. Who's going to stand in there in this new era? Who's going to stand up? Who's going to rise up by the power of the Holy Spirit? Who's going to do it? 
because they can't defend themselves. Have you ever been helpless? Truly helpless? Sorry, I really try not to get teary. It's just the Holy Spirit. There's people out there that truly understand utter helplessness. You know who else understood it? The one who was nailed to the cross. You don't get any more hopeless than that. Helpless than that. And he did it so that we could step into this new era. So I want to get on to characteristic number five, and this is an absolute mystery. I don't know if the Lord has ever revealed this to you, but this, he gave this to me several years ago, and I've been absolutely flabbergasted since. Characteristic number five, David was sharp, and he reasoned, and he weighed his situation by the power of God, right? He wasn't saying, like, I'm really good with a stone. I, I probably got this. No, he reasoned on the power of the Almighty God. So we know that he goes at it with a club to rescue the lamb from its mouth. And he says, if the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. Don't you think it's a little weird that he grabs it by its jaw? Did that st stand out to anybody? Yeah, wait, by the what? Some translations say by the beard. But the translation, the original text, when you dig into the original language, it says by the jaw. This is not the jaw. This is the jaw, the mandible, the jawbone. So don't try this at home. <laughs> Got to put that little warning out there. Uh, like my kids say, anytime I hear somebody say that, I just want to do it. <laughs> yeah, makes sense. So you guys, some of you know that I have a protection dog. He's a German shepherd, and he's a really mean-looking dog, but he's really just kind of like a house cat. Um, but we have him trained to be as nice as we can get him to be, to be nice to kids, nice to strangers, and we're constantly trying to teach him how to be nice. But I'm also teaching him how to be as vicious as possible. Uh, somebody tried to get into my house a couple, uh, it was about a year ago, Dodd, or two years maybe? Yeah, it was about three years ago, something like that. Well, it was when Denver was in the peak of his training, and he just wanted to bite things. And... Um, I got him because I, you know, I work sometimes long hours and it had occurred to me that if somebody wanted in my house, all they have to do is just watch for my work truck outside and then wait for me to pull away and they could have their way with the house, right? Well, it's about midnight one night and the front door opens and the dog flips out. Denver just goes completely crazy. He's snapping at the door. You know, when the dogs start, they're barking so loud, they're just snapping. And he goes running to the backyard, and he's snapping at the back door, running to the front, and it's very abnormal. So my wife calls me. She's like, are you here or what? I'm like, no, I'm out in Aurora. Somebody was trying to get into my house. They had opened the storm door, and they were wiggling the door, and the dog completely flipped out. So we've been training him for that moment. We've been training him for years to do that. So what I've started to do is this experiment, is I try to get him to bite the bite sleeve as hard and nasty as he can, and then I reach in there and I grab him by his jaw and I shake him around to see what he's going to do. And mind you, he's in full-blown attack mode right now. And anytime you grab him by his jaw, he goes, uh, 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 every time he backs away. Every time, bar none. Just going crazy, grabbing by the jaw, and he just 
And then David bashed his head in with the club. That's serious. But I've done that so many times, I do it for fun now. <sighs> Grab him by his jaw. Make me feel powerful. So let me ask you this. It's kind of a nice uh, attestation to the reality of this account. Seems a little outlandish until you actually understand that you can grab an animal by their jaw when they are attacking and trying to deliberately kill somebody. You can grab it by his jaw. But let me ask you, what is the strongest part of the lion? The jaw. What is the strongest part of the bear? The jaw. About a thousand pounds per square inch for the bear, about 700 for the lion. Pretty powerful with spikes. Pretty powerful. Listen, I love this. This is God's mysteries. This is good stuff. Goliath, his supposed strength was his size, his skills, but his true Achilles heel was his big mouth. The jaw. Yeah, Holy Spirit. He's incredible. Do you see that gem that's hidden there? Goliath was insolent, he was loud, and he was intimidating, and he was a big man, he was a big man, big mouth, I'm a killer, send out your big boy, and I'm going to take him down, you're nothing, your God is nothing, your king is nothing, Israel is nothing, send him out here, the big mouth, has anybody ever come against you like that, better yet, has the devil ever come against you like that, big mouth, you're not this, you're not that, you're not good enough. You got problems. You got baggage. You're damaged goods. That's the jaw of the enemy. And God expects you to take your stand against the jaw of the enemy, the loud mouth, the lies that came against you. He says, you grab it by the lie. You go right after it and you bash his head in by the power of the Holy Spirit. Are you a loser? Somebody ever tell you that? That you're not good enough? You're not pretty enough? You grab that devil. You grab God's enemy by the lie. That's what he's put here for us. This is precisely, I love this, precisely what uh, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 10.5. This is it. Take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. There's the lie. Make it obedient to Christ. It's beautiful. So this is the new era. This is the new era. When you have been covered by the blood of Christ, and you have been indwelled by His Spirit, you have every ability to seize your enemy by the lie. That's the new era. We're growing up, people. Yeah. <laughs> like I was telling my daughter earlier, how many times do you think I've apologized to you? She's like, a lot. <laughs> I want to grow up. And may this church grow up as well. Lord God, we do worship you. We worship you. We thank you for your truth and for your encouragement. Thank you that you have that you have a new era for this church, for us in our workplaces and as individuals and as uh, the body 
of Christ that you have a new era for us. And Lord, it's so encouraging to know that all the resistance that has come against us has all these things have been coming against us. Even last night, Lord, you know what happened in my sleep. All this awful stuff was happening to Betsy and myself. And I know that so much has come against this word. And I know that you are victorious. And we stand here before you, O God, and worship you and praise you as King David did. And we say, you are the living God. And we worship you and we submit to your authority and your power in our lives and in the lives of this church, in our families, with our friendships, with our neighbors. Lord, we submit to your authority and your goodness, and we trust you in this new era. Lord, would you please open our hearts and our minds as we go forward to see clearly what our role is in this new era of grace in our families, of all these different things. Lord, would you please make that clear to us? And we thank you in advance. We know that you are for us and that you have good things planned in advance for us to do. So we do thank you and we worship you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.